Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietley. So David, I guess we're not going to talk about UFOs today. Yay! We're going to talk about chocolate, right? Yes, chocolate. What kind of chocolate? Chocolate ghosts. Ghosts that eat strange candy. Hey, that's a different kind of chocolate. I Uh, like that. Yeah. Pan-dimensional chocolate. Oh, tell me more about the flavor of pan-dimensional chocolate. Well, you see, it's constantly morphing. Sometimes it's light milk chocolate. Sometimes it's dark bittersweet chocolate. Sometimes it's it's Nutella. You see, it sort of it's phasing the chocolate. <laughs> the chocolate reality is phasing in and out. So does it phase does it get kind of chocolate. liquid or something like that? Well, that that's a little personal, Gina. I don't think we should go there. We can't talk the about whole, liquid but, chocolate. Well, I mean, we can talk about liquid chocolate and its many uses, but I don't know if this is the right show for that. Mm. I know that we get requests from time to time to do a really another really good ghost show. You know, for my money, uh, it's one of the most interesting aspects of paranormal stuff because it's it's so well documented. There's been so many reports of ghost sightings throughout the whole world. I mean, and over many years, this is not something new. It's been remarkably consistent over the years in terms of the kinds of things people see but then there's been some extreme strangeness and there's just something about this that i find really compelling and i'm really glad we're going to have on today's guest to talk about it right tell us a little bit about the guest because he's somebody i've heard of vaguely but haven't really personally checked out his stuff Well, I actually found out about uh, Jeff by happening upon his uh, website, ghostvillage.com, and it was just this great repository of all these stories and pictures and episodes that all tie into ghostly sightings. And it's mostly stuff in the United States, I think, but um, they do reference stuff overseas, and it just seems to be like this major destination for people looking into anything and everything relating to ghost visitations and sightings. So I thought, well, this would be the perfect guest for us. And we'll be talking with Jeff Ballinger. He's got a site which he calls ghostvillage.com. Wow. Coming up next. Lots of books. He's done lots of books, too. Coming up next on the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. Here's an offer for your listener. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at one eight 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 ufo maga or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com, and they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. 
That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James Steinberg and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. So, Jeff, what is it that prompted you to start up GhostVillage.com, which seems to me is probably one of the main places to find out about ghosts on the Internet? What's the story? Well, it was a dark and stormy night back in 1999. A night just like this one. Hopefully it's dark and stormy wherever you are. (laughs) I don't know. What prompted me was actually I had written a few articles for various publications in my newspaper days when I got out of college. And this was in the the early days of the Internet and of the web. And I I found out one of the newspapers had put one of my articles up on their website. And they said the article was getting more hits than any other page on their site, which led me Hmm. to believe that people interested in ghosts are also on the leading edge of technology. Isn't that interesting? But So so that, that newspaper folded. It went out of business. And, and I had this article, and I said, you know, I really want to learn how to do websites. And so back in 99, in October, I just put up six little web pages. Two of those pages were two articles I had written previously. And I just put up a little note that said, hey, tell us about your own ghost encounters and send them in. Uh, about every six or eight weeks or so, someone would email us with a ghost encounter, and I'd publish it. And over the years, that number grew and grew and grew. And today, we probably receive about 10 a day. So they're wow. coming in all the time, and it's just it's grown exponentially. Well, that's, that's crazy. So what are those two original stories you wrote? What were they about personal encounters you had? Or One of them was an interview with Ed and Lorraine Warren, who uh, go way back. They've been ghost hunting for 50 mm-hmm. years. Uh, Ed Warren passed away uh, last year. So the second article I had written, I was actually doing research for a documentary film on Dudleytown, which is a place in northeastern, uh, excuse me, northwestern Connecticut, up in the mountains. It's an old New England ghost town, and there are many that uh, are dotted around New England. It's one of these failed towns. It was The land was cheap when it was bought back in the 1600s and living there was hard. Back then you really had to have a a farming community and when you're in the shadow of three mountains and really rocky soil, it's just not easy to make a go at farming, especially considering just a mile down in the valley, you've got really rich soil and much easier weather. It's not like New York City failed. That's right, that's right. Just like New York City except nothing like New York City. (laughs) Nothing. But uh, but yeah, so so people uh, people were leaving Dudleytown. There were a few unexplained murders, a few people disappeared whether they ran away or were abducted by warring Native Americans in the area is, is certainly up for debate. And then there's the alleged curse that comes over from the Dudley family, who, uh, of course, were trying to overthrow the King of England at one point. And so it had a lot of great stories, a lot of great history that all came to a point. And I was working on the documentary, and sadly, the, the film never got made. It never got funding. So I wanted to do something with all that research. So I put together an article and put that up on Ghost Village, and uh, that was also part of the impetus for the name Ghost Village, because Dudley Town was never really a town, and calling it a ghost town is actually a little too generous. It's just a few cellar holes today, so it was more like a ghost village, and that's where the name comes from. So, uh, Jeff, have you been to Dudley Town? Because I've read about that place, and it just looks, it looks like it's strange. It's kind of off the beaten trail. Have you been there? I have. I've been there four times. This was back in the 1990s. Part of it is private land. They used to allow hikers to go through, but uh, don't anymore. 
and it's uh, it's really very pretty. It's very quiet. People do claim that the birds don't chirp up there, which is certainly true. Uh, there are no birds, but having hiked all over the mountains of northwestern Connecticut, I can tell you there's very few birds anywhere in the upper hills, quite simply because there's no food up there. The food is mm. down in the, in the valleys where the people are, where the people put out bird seed and garbage and all kinds of other things that birds like to eat. So it's, it's very, it is very quiet and peaceful, and I imagine... If people aren't used to that, that it could seem eerie. But I've heard a lot of stories come in, and that's what intrigued me. So, you know, I've received a lot of email over the years, people saying, you know, I got very sick up there or I was uncomfortable. Uh, we know for a fact that people have performed various rituals up in there. I've seen photographs. For example, mm-hmm. someone put a, a bloody cow spine into oh. one of the cellar holes. Which was, Jeez. you know, I, I, you know, whether it's cursed or not cursed, I'm not sure, but that's certainly bad juju to bring into the area. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, cow spines. Ugh. Yeah, I know. But but when you go through, I mean, just to give you a kind of a mental picture, it's a trail in a heavily wooded area. You know, you, you walk through, and then you'll see cellar holes. And cellar holes are maybe, you know, 8 feet by 10 feet, and they're just depressions. They're not clear-cut basements or cellars, just depressions, which would have been under the house where people kept goods that you wanted to keep a little bit cooler. You know, it's, it's a pretty area. Uh, whether it's haunted or cursed, you know, that's very much up to an individual's opinion. This is interesting. You say that you get a lot of reports from your readers about corroboration of sites and so forth. Do you ever follow up with these people? Do you do you speak to them on the phone or get more first-hand testimony from them than just cold emails? Yeah, there's all kinds. You know, I, I mean, first of all, in regard to any ghost encounter, we always have to take it with a grain of salt, of course. And we're we're believing or not believing the the testimony of one person. Now, to me, here's what makes a haunt. Here's my definition of a haunt: mm-hmm. when you have repeated phenomena over a period of time, witnessed by multiple you know individuals who have nothing to gain by propagating the story. So, right. for example, I've heard from many haunted pub owners, you know, bar and pub owners, where a haunted legend uh, would really help. It really helps their business. It just does. Ghosts are good right. for business. Sure. Now that's fine. I'm not saying it's not haunted, but when the owner says, "Hey, come on in. I'll, I'll give you a free drink, and you know, and and you can hang out here, and you can write it up for your next book," well, you know, you have to say, like, "Well, wait a minute. Is this is this really about ghost research, or is this about driving more business your way?" But when you hear from an owner from, you know, 15 years ago who has nothing in the world to do with the place anymore who says, oh yeah, it's haunted, this is what I experienced, or from ex-employees who could care less whether the place, you know, succeeds or fails, or from individual patrons, well, that's more interesting. And so when those stories kind of add up over time, you have a haunt. Now, if you hear one story every five or six years, that's not very active. If you're hearing them six, seven, eight, nine, ten times a year, well, that's that's pretty interesting. That's kind of an active haunt. So Dudley Town is one of those cases. In some you know regard, it's just the emails that come in. Other times, people call. You know, it'll be telephone interviews. You know, what did you experience? You know, you may learn that some kids were out kind of legend tripping, as uh, my friend and author Dr. Bell might say. You know, you go out in the middle of the night into alleged spooky places and you, uh, you know, you go looking for this kind of stuff. You don't create uh, the stuff. You just look for it. That's I think right. about you know kids, what? you know. And when you look, sometimes you find, you know, if you're in the woods and it's dark in the middle of the night and something cracks, you know, out there somewhere, you know, one person's ghost is another person's deer <laughs> running through. Well, sure. Um, yeah, but that, and it all comes down to perception. But 
here's what's interesting to me is that, you know, on one regard, perception is reality, and people are perceiving this event as being very real. It's the, the memory is real, and the the effect it has on the person is extremely real. And when someone sees what they perceive to be a ghost or spirit, that really big question of is there life after death is answered for that individual forever. And it's absolutely life-changing. It's just like when you talk to someone who's found religion, you know, and they've just, you can see they've been moved by this, by this event, this religion, this faith, this belief system. They tell you all about it. They're excited. You know, uh, it's now part of their every fiber. And when someone has that ghost experience, it's very similar. It is a spiritual event after all, but really intriguing. And that's what keeps me coming back to it. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I Can. Host I Can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? It's reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's host I can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. Hey, all you have to do is go to our website, theparacast.com, and scroll down a little bit. You'll see a host I can banner. That's a host I can banner at theparacast.com. Click on that banner and you'll learn more about host I can where we host our sites. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. This is The Paracast, with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. Hey, let me tell our listeners, you're in The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're visiting the Ghost Village, the proprietor of ghostvillage.com, Jeff Bellinger, author of many thousands of books, including sure. The Ghost Files, Paranormal Encounters, Discussion and Research from the Vaults of ghostvillage.com. I gather that is your forthcoming book. That's the latest one, right? Yep, that should be out, I'm hoping, in August, definitely by September. Okay. Um, just been turned in so very excited about that well you've been busy i see one here called the nightmare encyclopedia your darkest dreams interpreted that takes us a little bit off ghost for a second but is this strictly about nightmare experiences it almost sounds like you can get into abduction scenarios there too (laughs) well you know here's the thing the uh a lot of paranormal claims uh, happen while people are sleeping or in bed. Sure. Uh, what started the whole thing was a phenomenon called old, old hag syndrome. Have you heard of it? Old hag syndrome, yeah. Okay, so for, for those who don't know, the idea is that you, you go to bed at night, you wake up, you, you recognize your surroundings, you know, there's your alarm clock, your bureau or whatever, you're paralyzed, and this dark mass is coming toward you. You can't move, you're completely freaked out. The dark mass may get on top of you, and then all of a sudden it's over. People keep kept telling me about this event that was happening to them, and I did some research on it. And then, of course, there are people who feel that during their dreams, they've been, you know, visited by people. Uh, some people claim it's a 
ghost. Like, gee, you know, my grandfather died years ago, and he came to me in a dream. Now, very difficult to prove that. It's just going to have to come down to the individual's belief. And the best we can say is, well, I believe that you believe, you know, and you're going to have to leave it at that. But uh, and then and then it gets into all kinds of other stuff, like you know, aliens, and you know, one person's ghost is another person person's alien. I've heard people describe the same old hag symptoms. Uh, but say no, that was an alien abduction. It was missing time. You know, it was it was a, a cl- or a close to abduction. You know, that was an alien form that came at me, not a spirit form. So it, I guess it all depends on what you're reading that day. <laughs> you know, as to how you interpret this this phenomenon. But no matter what, many people are having similar experiences. And so I kind of got into that. And my publisher said, you know, we want to do a, a book on dreams and 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 nightmares more specifically. And I thought, you know, that's pretty interesting because it's a it's a profound human experience nightmares you know that they're made up in our mind allegedly and we remember them how many dreams do you simply forget after you know a period of time you know you're you eat breakfast and you're like wow what a weird dream last night but, you know a little later that day it's completely gone but nightmares we remember i can recall nightmares i had when i was you know a teenager that was decades ago and i kind of wanted to understand that a little more so it was kind of like a dream interpretation guide and and a look at nightmares and popular culture and and how it's affected art and music and everything in between and it was kind of a a lot of fun and in doing so I, I I learned a little bit about dream interpretation and actually it was it was kind of fun I, I did a, a a radio show tour if you will uh, interpreting dreams for listeners it was pretty interesting so if you want to lay one on me I will be uh, I'll be happy to uh, well here's the I'll thing about that Jeff okay so you know it, it could be fun but what actual science is there that talks about how dreams are formed how our brains retain them based on at what point of the REM cycle we actually have them because sure. I've got friends who tell me that you know oh I was waking up and there was something on the wall or I was waking up and there was something in the room and I say to them you know anytime you're just describing something as you're coming out of a sleep state right. you automatically have to sort of question that and what you of see, course. Right? I mean, that's, it's called a hypnagogic hallucination. Exactly. And I've had exactly. those. Very common. And, and what a hypnagogic hallucination is, and, or hypnopopic, depending if you're going into sleep or coming out of sleep, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is basically a leftover dream. So you're, you're, you're dreaming, you're looking at a mountain, and all of a sudden you wake up and there's your bedroom and your door, but you still see the mountain and it just kind of fades away like an old right. TV right. turning off. Sure, that happens to people, absolutely. Here's what's amazing to me about dreams. We don't fully understand them. We don't fully understand why we need to sleep. Science that doesn't have that answer yet. We know we do. Uh, we'll sure. die without it. Uh, if, you know, in laboratory rats, for example, they they did experiments with. You mentioned REM sleep, which is rapid eye movement. Mm-hmm. About every ninety minutes, we cycle through various stages of sleep. When you first go to bed, you're very groggy. You know, you're tired. It's been a long day, and your brain waves are moving very slowly. About ninety minutes later, you get into REM sleep, and that's when your body is naturally paralyzed. It shuts down. That's part of the design, and when it shuts down, your brainwaves are really active, arguably more active than they are during the day. And you know, science believes what's happening is you're, you're storing data, almost like when you defragment your hard drive on your computer. You're going through memories and saying, like, well, this I should probably hang on to for a little while. This I don't need at all. You know, like the price of your, your latte at Starbucks, you don't really need to hold on to. Or finding out that my wife is pregnant. That's what I'm going to hold on to. That's a long 
long-term memory. And so that's one idea is that you're, you're sorting through everything you learn that day during that uh, rapid eye movement sleep. And it, and it has a lot to do with memory, and it has a lot to do with, of course, uh, you know, your, your neurological system and, and keeping it up to date. Because if you deprive someone of sleep long enough, you know, anyone will tell you, you just you start to shut down, you don't function very well, and we know for a fact, eventually, you will die if you deprive someone of sleep long enough. There's only so long you can go before you just have a complete meltdown on a neurological basis. But at the same time, there's all kinds of interesting things that are happening, and when you do dream, this is just what I believe based on my own research. Dreams are the language of the mind. Your mind doesn't talk to you in words and letters. It talks to you in images because that's what it understands. And I think in regard to dream interpretation, there's actually quite a bit we can learn. And when I say it's fun to do it, it is fun to do it. But uh, the best dream interpreter will always be the dreamer because you have to put that dream into the context of your own life. Right. It's highly subjective. So to, that's right. And so to say a blanket statement like to dream about water means it's, it's an emotional issue. Well, that right. may be true and that may be based on something. But what if you're a marine biologist? You probably dream about water all the time. You know, and so you have to look for more subtle clues. You'd have to look for something in the water, and you'd have to apply it to your life. I'm not a marine biologist, so you know, I, I couldn't pick out the nuances. But is the water dirty? Is it clear? Are you, are, are, is it coming in and, and getting higher, or is it receding? You know, these are the kind of things where you could look at that and say, well, what's going on in my life? Very Freudian, very psychology 101, but I think it's a way that we can help decode our own lives. And that well, I think, is, a, is a value. Sure. Well, also, when you talk about dreams, though, what I think a lot of people don't realize is that there are all these other external components and things that influence how dreams play out. And one of the things I discovered years ago, I had um, traveled to Crested Butte, Colorado, which is a town way up in the mountains, to speak at the uh, Digital Storytelling Festival. And the first two nights I was there, I had the most unbelievably intense realistic dreams. I mean, they were just completely out of control. And Dana Ashley, the guy who was the, uh, may he rest in peace, who the host of the, uh, the Digital Storytelling Festival, the very first morning, he asked the audience, okay, so how many of you had really weird dreams last night? And people were like looking at each other going, what the heck is this about? And sure enough, it turns out it was an issue of the thinness of the oxygen at that altitude. And that was something that your brain and your body could get accustomed to after a couple of days. But for the first couple of nights... This had right. a very intense effect on both the, the content and the intensity of the dream state. And then the other thing is the brain chemistry. You know, it, it, there are some interesting things along these lines. And one of the things that I've read about is that in terms of people who use uh, marijuana on a regular basis, that THC, the component in marijuana that is psychoactive, actually inhibits dream states so that people who smoke a lot of pot, don't dream a lot. And, it, and it's literally a function of the THC. And when they stop smoking, they go through like weeks of really intensified dreams. So a lot of things play into, the again, the both the content and the intensity of the dream experience. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www. 
F-A-T-E-M-A-G dot com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're joined by Jeff Bellinger. He runs ghostvillage.com, and he is also author of many books, including one we've been talking about here, about dreams. All right? Yeah, not that we intended to get into this topic. No, it's but just it kind of raised itself, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, hey, no problem. Nothing's topic. off limits. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Uh-oh. No, of course. <laughs> no, go ahead. How about chocolate? Chocolate's fine. Okay. What would you like to know? <laughs> if, if you eat chocolate in a dream, do you get fat in the waking world? That's absolutely true. Maybe. (laughs) No, I don't know. Everyone likes chocolate. Actually, believe it or not, there are people who do not like chocolate. I don't believe you. No, there are. are. No way. Find one. This is going to be a more serious debate than two (laughs) factions of the UFO Enigma, no, the no, UFO chocolate, field. No, chocolate advocates. No, it's the chocolate smackdown. No, it's not the chocolate smackdown. There are okay. people in this world who don't like chocolate, and there are people who don't like garlic. And I don't trust anybody who doesn't like chocolate and or garlic, or both. Actually. Fair enough. I, I, yeah, absolutely. So I think chocolate-covered garlic cloves are in some product marketeer's future. I, don't ask me why. You gave right. somebody an idea here, so we should patent this. Oh, man. Yeah, that's forget it. it. There you go. And this, this, this idea brought to you by the ghostly realm. All right, so let's get back to ghosts. Jeff, I've been looking at stuff on Ghost Village, and, and I really enjoy the site, by the way. It's a really great Thanks. site. I, I recommend everybody go and, and take a look at it. But let's look at the pros and the cons of ghost stuff. And I want to start right off with a con, because that's sort of what the Paracast is known for. We, we look at stuff critically. So let's talk about orbs. Yes, let's. I love right. orbs. Oh, my God, I love orbs. So tell me why Let's you not love- get too emotional about these well, orbs. Sorry. <laughs> tell, tell us why you love orbs. Orbs are becoming almost a belief system unto themselves, which is really interesting to me. The orb phenomena started in the 80s, and at first it was owned by the UFO people who felt, you know, these round spherical balls and photographs represent some kind of UFO energy or intelligence or interaction or interdimensional travel or whatever. The theories go on and on forever and ever. And then something happened in the late 90s and early, you know, 2000. It had to do a lot with digital cameras, I think, becoming so inexpensive and wonderful and everybody had them and they showed up again quite a bit and then they were taken over by the ghost people which is interesting you know and that's that's the soul in its basic form or that's a spirit or that's this or that's that uh you know i contacted kodak and olympus and i I sent them pictures i had taken and i didn't say anything about ghosts or ghost village or anything else i said what's causing this in my photos you know how does this happen i'm i'm a consumer i own your product and often and i can tell you this today i don't want them in my photos i'm taking pictures for you know for books and articles and i don't want to publish them if they have round balls in them i just want 
you know, what's, what's in the photo. And uh, I got a great explanation about how these things are, are caused. You know, things like lens flare. You know, there's, there's four to six, sometimes eight lenses in your digital camera that light has a chance to bounce off of. So shiny objects that may not be in the center of the field of vision can come in and, and cause this lens flare, just like you see when a camera pans through the sun or something like that. So there's so many wonderfully good natural normal explanation for orbs, but yet people still want to hold on to something paranormal with them. And I learned years ago, you know, people would come up to me at conferences and they'd show me a photo with orbs in it. And I'd say, oh, well, you know, moisture or dust or yeah. the lens is awfully close to the flash and you've got these reflecting things. And I'd give all the answers that I've heard from independent photographers and from Olympus and from Kodak. And they'd look at me and say, you insensitive jerk. That's my uncle Larry who passed away last year. And I'd say, oh, you're right. Now, you know, now that you mention it, that does look a little like Larry. But what's interesting to me is, and I, I try to go easy on orbs because I recognize it gets people asking questions. And I think questions are healthy as long as you evolve, you know, as long as you say, oh, yeah, I did look into it. And, you know, okay, fair enough. There's not a lot to this, but there is a lot to the phenomena in general, and I'd like to know more. And so when someone comes up to you with their first orb photo and you just say, oh, you idiot, that's just junk, throw it away, you know, sometimes people get turned off from the whole field altogether, and I don't think that's a good thing because I think questions are good. Well, but sure. I, I always hope that people quickly evolve <laughs> off the orb topic. Well, what you've got is an opportunity to present people with the idea that they should think critically. And I've been approached by a number of people who listen to the show and at a couple of events I've attended where people knew who I was and they walked up to me with photos because one of my areas of specific specialty is image processing and photographic analysis. That's my professional background. And people say, look at these orb photos that I've shot. I never saw this when I was shooting the pictures. So the minute they say this, I look at them and I say, let me guess, you were using a point-and-shoot camera, weren't you? And they say, right. what do you mean? And I say, well, you were using a camera that's not a single-lens reflex camera. It's not an SLR. And they'd say to me, uh, yeah, how did you know that? And now their eyes go white. Because you're psychic. <laughs> How did you exactly? And I say to them, well, right. you know, you have to understand what a point and shoot camera is and what you're actually seeing in the viewfinder is not what's hitting the uh, CCD array on the uh, the photo capture part of the uh, of the camera. You know that you're not seeing what's coming through the lens, and that's one of the whole points of an SLR is to actually see what is actually coming through the lens. And when you press the shutter, you lose the view of that in the viewfinder for a minute because that's when the mirror moves and the light actually passes to the back of the camera, and that's when the picture's actually taken. So that, you know, instantly you can start to educate people about, all right, look, you don't see it in the viewfinder because of the way your camera works. And what you said is exactly right, Jeff, that you know, the lens has X number of components in it, and when you have bright points of light in a scene, and they say, well, what if the light's not actually in the picture? Yeah, but if the light's right above where you were or to the sure. right and back of where you were, and there are reflective objects in the scene, like people taking photos of things in mirrors, and then they get the right. orbs, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, no, understood, understood. You know what I mean? It, the one thing that's interesting to me about orbs, though, is that I've spoken with people who have seen glowing balls moving through an environment with their naked eye. They don't have it on camera, although I have seen one pretty interesting piece of video that was taken by Dennis William Hawk in Colorado that I can't explain. Uh, Is that the wow. video inside the house? No, it's outside the house. It's okay. outside the backyard, and this guy had quite an elaborate monitoring system and two, two glowing balls that gave off 
light. You know, the, the, the trees would light up as they passed by or kind of just moving. It's only about, I don't know, eight seconds of video, but I just couldn't explain to you how, how it happened. I'm not saying it's proof of the afterlife or anything else. I'm just telling you I have no clue how it could have naturally occurred. And so you hear a few of these accounts, and I say, well, I guess, you know, there are maybe there's glowing balls in the universe that we just don't know about. And if you can see them with the naked eye, I would imagine one could also point a camera at them and capture them. But there's so many orbs out there that I think, you know, you almost have to take them off the discussion table because they're just so prevalent. And if and how would you tell the difference between one of those real ones that people saw with the naked eye and, you know, one of the many, many, you know, lens flare or dust or, you know, other things that cause them naturally uh, to the point where it, it's, it makes everybody crazy. And again, my only hope is that we just evolve past it. And if, if orbs are what gets you asking questions and interested in the subject, that's fine. But please keep reading. <laughs> you know, don't, don't stop at Chapter 1. Want to hear from you? If you comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Okay, sure. Chapter Two. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking with Jeff Bellinger. He is author of many thousands of books, and also not really some of them are in the spiritual realm, of course. And he also is the proprietor of GhostVillage.com. Okay, so Jeff, I gather from what you say that the orbs, or your feeling is the orbs, are mostly just reflections of one sort or another. There's no psychic or extraterrestrial reality to them. I don't. I don't believe so. No. Well, actually, I just want to chime in here for a minute, Jeff, because that fellow who you were mentioning who had the um, security camera set up and who filmed a couple things outside of his uh, home, I'm right. not sure if it's the same guy I'm thinking about, but there was, um, and in fact, we have a link on it on our uh, the Paracast forums to a documentary that's sitting on Google Video. I think it was um, broadcast on Bravo, and uh, it was about really compelling photographic and video evidence. And there's this, I'm not sure if it's the same guy, but it's a guy with a couple of small children younger children, and they were seeing these things in the house, and he set up this very elaborate security camera system. It captured some sort of weird phosphorus spheres outside the house, but then there's a piece of footage, and I bring this up because, for me, this is one of the most compelling pieces of video evidence of any paranormal event I have ever seen, where he had this thing inside of his home. There was this, what looked like a plasma entity of some sort. Uh, it was like a, a, a spherish shape, but um, it had sort of trails coming off of it, and it moves right up to the camera. I mean, it and the motion of this thing, the light, it's and it's emanating light, obviously. Right. Um, the motion is not something that could have ever been done on a track. It's not CG. It's not faked. Uh, I, I, my eye has been trained to see these things. It is absolutely, positively staggering footage. And I'll, I'll bring it up on the Paracast forums again, and I'll send you a link for the, um, for the Ghost Village site, because as far as visual video evidence that's, in my mind, irrefutable, this stuff is its the only, quote-unquote, orb footage I've seen that just made me catch my breath. Just truly right. outstanding stuff. I would bet it's the same one. It was the Steve yeah. Lee house in Black Forest, Colorado. That's it. That's it, right. And that's the 
Dennis William Hawk was involved with that investigation, and he actually showed me the video the first time I saw it. And I said, you know, I, I don't I don't have an explanation for that. There's one other video I've seen that's never been released, and it was taken by Ed Warren in Union Cemetery in Connecticut. And I've seen, you know, many things, too, and, and usually I look. In fact, I can only think of two or three examples where I, I said, you know what, I don't have a good explanation for this. Right. And Ed Warren's was one of them. He was in Union Cemetery, which has a wonderful legend of a white lady. Over in England, there's all kinds of white ladies and gray ladies and green ladies, and they're they're almost part of a, you know, our collective consciousness here now. But uh, Union Cemetery's got a, a white lady that's seen up and down the road and in the cemetery. And one night, Ed Warren parked his van right outside the cemetery gates because you're not allowed to go inside after dark. Most states have that law. Mm-hmm. And he set up his camera. And I saw the footage, and what you see is a, a white mist kind of comes together out in the field of vision behind some, some gravestones. It forms into a figure that looks like a head and shoulders. I guess you could even go so far as to say it looks feminine, but no distinguishing features, no eyes or nose or anything. And it's moving deliberately around the headstones. It comes toward the camera. These black-like things just come up from the bottom, and it dissolves into the ground. All about six mm-hmm. seconds of video. And I looked at that, and I said, now, assuming Spielberg wasn't involved, assuming, you know, he, he didn't, you know, go through some elaborate hoax, I have no explanation for that. And what's interesting to me is he never released it. He never put it out. I never saw it on TV. And I asked him before he died, before he had his stroke and while he was still pretty coherent, and said, uh, you know, he said, well, this is my retirement plan. This is the one I'm going to retire on. But he never put it out, which I think is, a, is disappointing because I, I'd love for other people to see it and see what they think, you know. It's just at one of these intriguing pieces of video, like the like the Steve Lee house in Colorado, just don't have an explanation, and that in itself is always good for the discussion. Absolutely, true, true enigmas keep this stuff interesting, keep it compelling, and you know we've had Lorraine Warren on the show, really interesting lady, and I've actually had a bunch of conversations with her on the phone. Interesting stuff. I think the only issue we had with Lorraine um, when she was on the show was that I guess the Warrens approached this from the demonology point of view and right. tended to couch all of the research in religious terms. And I think right. maybe, yeah, that. I, but I think that sort of turns certain people off. Sure, uh, of course it does. But then again, even mentioning a ghost turns certain people off. So what are you going to do? That's true. You'll never make everybody happy. Uh, no, you're right. And they did. And that was not only demonology, they were a very Catholic perspective. You know, not just Baptist or Christian. They, um, you know, though they claim that they worked with various clergy from different faiths, they themselves were devout Catholics and went about it from that perspective, which is interesting to me. I, I've talked to many ghost hunting groups from all over the world, and one of the things I've, I've found two examples of now, which is intriguing to no end, are evangelical Christian ghost hunting groups. I, I know, I said, are you kidding? It doesn't, I, doesn't seem to make sense, right? Like, what's that about? Interesting. But, and, and I'll tell you what it's about. They're using the ghost experience as a way to evangelize and as a way to bring people into the flock. They go in armed with their Bible and, and prayer and things like that, and they want to. They claim they want to help families, and they want to get them to church to deal with this. And I'm like, isn't that interesting? Everybody's in on the act. I haven't found any devoutly Jewish groups yet, so if you're out there and listening, call me. I, I want to know. Jeff, yeah. G and I may be able to help you with that. I'll go to the Lubavitchers. Oh, good. And uh, we'll get the uh, the pastrami and the what what the pastrami paranormal group. The That's PPG. right. Why not the bagel paranormal group? Or Bubala, I love it. About? Don't I hey, love it, hey, Bubala? Yes. Look, it's flying schmatters. Look at this. It's this <laughs> flying schmatters there in the corner. 
<laughs> you know, I, I went to uh, I went to Hofstra University in Long Island, which kind of makes me an honorary Jew. Actually, um, I don't have a degree in it. Well, but don't get carried you. away with yourself. No, no, no. I believe me. I was happy to walk around eating ham and cheese on the days of fasting and ask how everybody was doing. Oh, nice. That's no, that's no, no. Old, man. And then sharing the Manischewitz after sundown. <laughs> but no, no. I, but I think it's interesting that people you do you bring your religion into this. You have to. It's part of the luggage we all carry. We can't help it. You know, that's that's how you were brought up. You can't just wipe that away as, as hard as you try. You know, you can bury it, you can push it down, but if you were raised in a specific belief system, it's very difficult to, to turn that off, especially in regard to this discussion. Let's extend that to the global perspective, Jeff. What kind of uh, reports do you have on Ghost Village from other countries? I mean, do you see in receiving these reports, are there some countries where these types of sightings are more prevalent than others? Are there hot spots? Here's the thing. There seem to be hot spots, though I don't really believe that. Now, we're an English language site, so I'm not getting a lot of reports from non-English speaking countries. It's just, it's a limitation of, you know, the ability to communicate across languages. I'm sorry, you know, I'm an American. I speak English and a little bit of a few other languages, but not enough to, you know, host a community about it. I get tons from England, tons from Ireland, all over the UK, plenty from Australia. I'm noticing more and more from India, uh, which, you know, certainly is an English-speaking country for the most part, uh, and then places like Singapore, things like that. So the accounts come in wherever history made its mark. Now, one of the other questions is, in the United States, I often get, you know, is, the, is there a part of the United States that seems to be more haunted than another? And they'd say, oh, you're in New England, that's got to be more ghosts because you have more history up there. And that may be true, but I think it has more to do with people are more open to the discussion. So we've got really old buildings in New England because the, the country started here. The United States started here. Obviously, there were people here before us. But the United States started up here. The revolution started up here. And we've got buildings that are 250, 300 years old. And often they get haunted reputations. People are raised, you know, knowing about the ghosts there or at least hearing that it's haunted. Their kids are raised the same way. And so we discuss it a little more because it's around us. It's visible to us. In England, it's even more so because a 300-year-old house in England is a baby. You know, I mean, you could go down London and be, you know, 600-year-old houses, 700-year-old homes and buildings. And people just talk about ghosts more because, again, you've got generations of ghostly legends surrounding you. Is it more haunted in England or do they talk about it more? That's what I'm not totally sure of. I tend to think more the latter, that they just talk about it more because it's part of their culture and part of who they are. Do they take you it seriously, though? Is it something that they look at as, oh, this is funny, we had a ghost last night, or this house has been here for 300 years, and the ghost shows up every year at the same time? Is it something that's done for entertainment or something they take seriously or some combination thereof? Oh, I think both, just like here in the U.S. I mean, there are TV shows that are, you know, it's absolutely goofy how they handle paranormal, you know, stuff. Uh, and there are other people that take it so seriously, I, um, I think they almost take some of the fun out of it. You know, hey, wait a minute. These are ghost stories, too. You know, that's, that's part of our, our heritage and our culture and, and, and oral tradition. You know, and so, for example, a great example, you go to the Tower of London in England the, and you speak to the yeoman warders there. And I actually had the opportunity to go there after hours one evening as a guest of one of the yeoman warders. These guys are military officers. They've been in the Army 22 years or more. They've 
receive they, they reach the rank of staff sergeant or higher. They have a long standing and good conduct medal. They've got exemplary references, and that means you're allowed to apply for the job of yeoman warder. These guys live and work there. They live and breathe the history. But above all, they're military officers protecting, you know, one of the oldest sites in the country. You know, it goes back almost a thousand years. And they're very matter-of-fact about their ghosts. And I think that's rather interesting. Now, they won't say, well, I believe in ghosts or not. They will say, gee, you know, I was standing there in my apartment and my teddy bear kind of floated across the room and hit the floor. Very matter-of-fact. You know, this is what happens. Whether it's paranormal or some weird electromagnetic energy that passes through here periodically, I don't know. It's just a culture that's more open to to the discussion. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we have with us Jeff Bellinger, who has ghostvillage.com, and he's author of lots and lots of books on ghostly encounters. So if I was British, I'd be more accepting of the ghost phenomenon than in the (laughs) USA. Is that what you're telling me? I think it would be just more a part of your upbringing. Okay. That, oh, yeah, that your friend's house is haunted, sure. When you live in a community where all the houses are 20 years old, there's just not a lot around there that lends itself to good ghost legends, to, to the propagation of ghost legends. What makes it worse, though, is the way homes are built these days. You're lucky if it lasts for 20 years. That's right. That's right. No, you're absolutely, and that's all part of it. And then you've got things like cemeteries, of course, where, you know, show me a cemetery and I'll show you a place that, I guess, should be haunted, or at least has a, a haunted legend around it. Well, but, oh. now, hold on. Uh, this, yes. I, I mean, I, I agree with all this, but then you hear reports mm-hmm. that come out of places like Gettysburg, where you had a tremendous right. loss of life, and there have been consistently over a large number of years a vast number of reports that have come out of Gettysburg. In fact, I've seen some footage that I, I'm sure, Jeff, you've seen. Gene, I don't know if you've seen, but there's some footage floating around online of some. And one thing that was taken in Gettysburg specifically where this family is watching these really kind of ghostly figures moving in, in distant trees, and they look like they're even yeah, off the that. ground. You've seen that. I mean, so what about a place like Gettysburg where you've got, again, just consistent reports over many years with things like visual evidence? Sure. Does this lend any credence to the idea that there are places that maybe, forget about historical aspects in terms of a, a large number of years, but perhaps in a small number of years, let's say a lot of loss of life in one place, is there any possibility that that 
creates a, a context, a situation where there's simply more unrest in the air and these things can manifest more easily? I absolutely believe there are hot spots in the world, and Gettysburg is a wonderful example. I use it often, so thanks for bringing it up. The same with uh, cemeteries. People will ask, well, why on earth would a cemetery be haunted? If you're a ghost and you can go anywhere, why would you hang around a cemetery? I would think like the 50-yard line of Patriots football games would be the most haunted place on earth, right? That's where I'd go. If I could go anywhere, I'd be you know ringside of, of some killer concerts and sports sporting events. I'd be at every World Series if, if time and space were no issue. But the thing about cemeteries and about battlefields like Gettysburg is they're hollowed grounds. They're places of the dead. And when you go through them, either consciously or subconsciously, or maybe a combination of both, you're thinking about your own mortality. You're thinking mm-hmm. about the hereafter. If you're in Gettysburg, and you have, first of all, if you're in Gettysburg, you probably have some appreciation of history. Otherwise, you were dragged there by someone else. Right. Right. You know, so there's a good chance you know even a little bit about what took place there, about the 51,000 lost over the span of three days and, you know, just, just the amazing carnage that took place in such a relatively small area. And when you understand that, you know, and when you think about the idea of a soldier, you know, soldiers don't die for God and country. Soldiers die for each other. They die to push the front line three more feet, you know, ten more feet, because if they don't, their buddy behind him has to do it. And if he doesn't, eventually it goes all the way back to his house where his wife and kids live and... Yeah. Then it all falls apart. So that's that's the nature of, of fighting and the emotion, the fear, the anger, the rage, all of that in one place, I think, leaves a mark that's there forever. And some people are able to pick up on that mark. I don't believe that places like Gettysburg have lots of wandering souls. I think what's more likely is it's some kind of impression left on the area that for some reason some people are able to pick up on. Classic example is the Phantom Regiment marching across the field. You know, people see, you know, say, oh, wow look, reenactors, they're, they're going across Devil's Den today, and then all of a sudden the whole group of, of soldiers disappears. I don't believe a group of souls got together intelligently and said, hey guys, let's go march on Gettysburg again, it'll be fun. I think what's more likely is that someone's picking up something that may have been there at one time, you know? I mean, you look at, like, quantum physics, which suggests that time is not necessarily linear. Well, isn't that interesting? Through some force of will or, or something else, are we able to look into the past just briefly, just like a like a fogged over window, you know, see it and then it's gone? Or is this some kind of mark that's actually left on the land that some people who are sensitive can pick up on and tune into, almost like a, a radio station or, you know, waves that are floating around in the air? I don't know. But I do know, like you said, that reports come in constantly, you know, of seeing soldiers, of seeing events, the video that was yeah. sent in. That's creepy stuff. That's right. These things that that tell you that, boy, I don't know what's going on in Gettysburg, but something is. Something is still there. Along those same lines, I'm wondering, have you received, and I don't know this, I'm going to ask, have you received reports indicating that there's any kind of ghostly presence in a place like Pearl Harbor? Yeah, I have, actually. I've heard that people have spotted a a soldier kind of walking the deck of where the ship would have been. So almost hovering like 8 feet, 10 feet above the waterline. People, you know, make the assumption that that would have been a soldier kind of keeping watch, you know, above, above the, uh, the USS Arizona. People have also reported seeing, you know, a guy in a Navy uniform walking on that, that floating, you know, memorial, which is out in the middle of the water. You yeah, can only oh, get yeah. there by boat. You know, it's, it's, there's no land bridge to it. You go there by boat. So, yeah, I have heard reports from places like that. And not only that, you look at ships like the Queen Mary in Long Beach, California. Oh, infamous. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which, uh, you know, that's why would an inanimate object be haunted? 
you know, why would you, why would you haunt a boat? You know, it's, it's metal and screws and wood and carpet and things like that. Yeah, that's a good question. And, and one of the other great skeptical questions that people ask is, why aren't ghosts naked? <laughs> you know, okay, maybe <laughs> maybe a person has a soul, but do their chinos? <laughs> does their does their blouse or their dress? You know, how, how does it's that? It's a larger happen? issue. Yeah, when you pass over, assuming the ghosts represent the other side of life, right. should you be clothed? That's, That's right. And, and, here's, and here's a wonderful little exercise that I've, I've heard done a few times now. Uh, if you close your eyes and picture yourself, and you can try this at home and you guys can try this now, just picture yourself somewhere, anywhere, maybe in your favorite spot, in your house, at your favorite pub or restaurant. Are you naked when you picture yourself? Do you see mm-hmm. your feet when you picture yourself? <laughs> you know, I, I can't answer this without just getting completely ridiculous. So I won't even. Of try. course not. You're saying no. I'm wearing a clown suit, and uh, you know. But most people, when they run through that experiment, they they, they may not remember what clothes. they're wearing, right? Right. But they're clothes. They're wearing something. Yeah, sure. They're wearing something, and often they don't remember their feet. They kind of see themselves from like torso up, waist up, and so. Interesting. And, and that's often how people describe seeing a ghost. You know, torso up, waist up, no feet, wearing period costume or whatever. In that case, is it some kind of intelligent projection? Is that what someone wants you to see? Just like when you imagine yourself. Well, that All brings right. up a bunch of interesting questions. And, and Jeff, just so you know, there was an episode of the Paracast where I had on an old friend of mine, my buddy Bill, and we talked about an episode where we saw an apparition in southern Florida in a condo where we both, well, he grew up, I spent a number of years, and um, we had a, an extended sighting of an apparition that was pretty much completely opaque was wearing period clothes of like the 70s this girl it was a situation where we saw a lot of detail we did see in fact that she had feet you know she was wearing some kind of shoes i couldn't actually tell you what kind of shoes she was wearing um we we specifically remember the clothing she was wearing this kind of fringe leather jacket and like bell-bottom jeans and the thing was that um what we were never able to figure out and I'll bring this up as a question to you now, is that we didn't know whether we were seeing sort of a manifestation of an individual or what I at the time felt, based on the impression I had of it, was more of a, it was almost a personification of, of an emotional state. It was almost like she was sadness incarnate. And, and we, we watched her dematerialize right in front of us, actually. It was a very intense sighting. And I mean, I, I talked about it on the show because I had a corroborating witness. It wasn't just me; it was the two of us. And and there's details in the episode. But how do you delineate between what is uh, an apparent manifestation of a specific individual soul, let's say a ghost, versus a spirit? What is the the distinction between those things? Yeah. No, well, there's there's a few things that you can look for as far as clues go. But not being there, I'm going to have to defer to you because you were there. Right. For example. When, when something might be a residual haunting, like Gettysburg, you know, the soldiers who march across the field and then disappear, or in a home where you hear that, you know, periodically someone will see a woman walk down a hall, turn left, and disappear right into the wall. She doesn't look at anybody. She doesn't acknowledge anyone. She's completely oblivious. You could scream and yell. She doesn't turn her head. No interaction. That, right. No interaction. You would tend to think that that's something that's kind of residual, something that's just playing over and over like a movie. If it looks at you, you know, if it interacts, if it communicates, if it makes eye contact, if it acknowledges your presence, then it seems to be intelligent, you know. And so, but there's also gray area. 
that's not to say that this being or entity that you saw, you know, if indeed that's what it was, maybe it just didn't notice you, though it was intelligent and interactive. So in some cases, there's no way to ever prove it, but the best judge is going to be the witness. Right. And, and actually, in, in this particular example, this particular case, we didn't think she noticed us until the very end when she stood up and she looked right at us and then turned around and started walking away and within about 20 feet dematerialized. So there was kind of a combination of things where, again, we didn't really necessarily get the impression that we were seeing an individual, but at the end there was this acknowledgement where she seemed to be aware of our presence right in front of her. So it was kind of this weird combination. And I think it's important, though, to interject one thought and then have you respond to this, which is that when we talk about you know belief systems and talk about talking about this stuff as you know, um, in the context of getting people to get interested and to believe in things. What I can tell you is that what Bill and I saw that day, we don't have to believe we saw it. We, we were there. We know what we saw. Right. Now, you can believe that it was a lot of different things. And, you know, uh, I'm not going to say that I know in any definitive way what we saw, but it really transcends belief. And I think that's an important thing when you, know, you talk about paranormal stuff and the effect it has on people's lives. It's when it's, you know, a, a material, solid thing that manifests that you can, especially if you've got corroborating witnesses, where it's more than one person, you're all seeing the same thing, and then you all can then say to each other, we don't have to believe what we saw, we just know what we saw. And I think that's an that's important right. distinction, right? You know, it's, it's funny you bring that up, because one of the chapters in the book that I have coming out called The Ghost Files is, I turn back to the original ghost hunter, Plato. <laughs> and uh, I've become very interested in philosophy lately, because science doesn't like this subject, because it's often not black and white. We're trying, people. there are people out there really trying to make it black and white. In, in some respects you can, but in most you can't. And then you don't want to just get into, like you said, belief system, because that's willy-nilly. You know, that's just belief. Right. You can believe that, you know, a flying saucer is going to come take your soul behind the sun and take you off to Zorg the space god or whatever. You know, you can believe that. And it can Zorb, be true to you. I met him the other day. He said that he, he wanted a hamburger first. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We are back with Jeff Ballinger of ghostvillage.com, and David has become a spiritual entity during the period of time between the what? end of part one of the show and the beginning of part two. But, you know, Jeff, we have all these really, really interesting stories here, and I guess we always look for the hard evidence here. So have you ever tried to trap a ghost or do some kind of hard-nosed investigation to see what's going on? Absolutely. I've gone out with many a ghost investigative group, people that are using all kinds of equipment, and, and the argument seems to come down to one thing, which I think is, is pretty solid. The argument is, if there's a ghost in a room, it's in the environment. If it's in the environment, you must be able to measure that in some way. For example, you or I cannot walk into a room without changing it, changing the airflow, changing you know the density of the you know some kind of displacement of air molecules. Uh, you can't. Uh, if an object slides across your desk, something exerted energy on it. You know that's the only way objects move. There's there's no other way that, that our current understanding of science will allow that to happen. So if you go into an environment and you try to measure it, uh, I know 
folks are using electromagnetic field meters trying to measure this. They're using infrared, you know, cameras trying to look for, you know, heat signatures. They're using infrared film. They're using all kinds of audio and video recording equipment, all trying to capture this elusive, you know, event that is reported millions of times over, but we can't seem to put into a, a beaker and bring it into a laboratory and, and capture it. I don't know how one does that, and I appreciate the effort, absolutely. I think most folks are using the equipment wrong. For example, an EMF meter is not meant to detect ghosts. <laughs> it's meant to detect electromagnetic fields. It works wonderfully well. Walk up to your television when the television's on and have an EMF meter in your hand and you'll see exactly how much radiation that thing is giving off and you'll see how close you shouldn't sit to it. <laughs> you know, same with your computer monitor. Absolutely. And I appreciate what people are trying to do, but the fact that you, you can't take a baseline reading means your little handheld EMF meter is more or less useless. It, it's kind of like you know, if you're in a swimming pool and you pee right in the swimming pool and take the temperature right down near your crotch, it's going to be really warm. Oh, boy, mean, this is getting raunchy here. Wow. That's right, and I'm sorry, but it doesn't mean the whole pool is 95 degrees. It just means right where you took the temperature, it's 95 degrees. Sure. And so that's one of the problems with some of the equipment is that people just aren't using it correctly. That doesn't mean there isn't something to it. Uh, I'm not saying that at all, but I just mean that we really should take a close look at how this, what this equipment's for. Mm -hmm. Things like a, like a camera, like you said. You're using a point-and-shoot point camera, you know, disposable even worse, and you're getting orbs. Well, that's that's not real science. You're not controlling your environment very well uh, if you're trying to, to get some kind of hard, hard evidence of this. Believe it or not, I think the most compelling evidence we have is the eyewitness testimony. I think the volume of it is compelling. I think the fact that people perceive it as real and that the effect it has is profound is very compelling. Uh, and I think that sometimes, like you know, like your example with two people seeing the same thing, that's I think that's some of the most compelling evidence that we have. And there's a lot of evidence that's coming out lately to support you know the reliability of human memory. I know there's been many things to detract from that. Things like you know people going to court and they don't remember was the guy wearing blue jeans or slacks or you know this, this mugger came down the street and he he ran off. Was he wearing a red baseball cap or a blue baseball cap? You know, these are the kind of things that people used to pick apart a scene. And and that's true. In the case of the mundane and in something that you weren't personally afraid of, human memory really can't be trusted. I mean, do you recall what you had for breakfast two weeks ago on Wednesday? Probably not, right? Probably well, not. I probably no. do because I have mostly the same thing every day. <laughs> right. So okay, I would be 50% well, right. It's either going to be oatmeal or it's going to be some kind of mixed cereal, a cold cereal. Fair enough. But, and, and sure, there's cases like that. But you know, you know what I'm saying. For the most part, we just don't remember the little details because they're not really profound. There's something that happens that science is just starting to understand recently in regard to memory. When you're afraid, when you're going through a, an event that gets adrenaline going, not just fear, it can also be um, you know, other powerful emotions. But for example, let's, let's take an example from uh, a thousand years ago. You're walking along in the jungle and you slip near a group of trees and you fall into a tiger pit and they're all walking around you looking like you know you're a philly cheesesteak and you are scared out of your mind because these things are drooling and they're growling at you all of a sudden you see a break in the trees you leap you swing on a vine and you get out of there and you manage to escape with your life you will remember the details of
of that event with great clarity because there's an evolutionary reason for you to remember it. Number one, you don't want to end up there again. And number mm-hmm. two, if you do end up there again, you want to remember how you got out. Mm-hmm. And the reason is really intriguing, the, the study that's going on. When you're afraid, adrenaline is released in your body, the chemical adrenaline, and it gets you ready for fight or flight. When adrenaline hits your brain in a little tiny almond-sized uh, group of neurons called the amygdala, which in the amygdala is, is stored right next to the hippocampus. That's, that's where it's located. Hippocampus is, reg- is uh, used for long-term memory. So there's a real good reason that you remember these powerful events. Another good example. Do you remember where you were March 3rd, 2004? <laughs> anyone? 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 No. no. Do you remember well, where you were? I could spend an hour and a half, and you're going to say this, telling you what I did on the day of the Kennedy assassination. That's right. Or, or September 11th, you know, 2001. Absolutely. Where were you? What were you doing? <laughs> Absolutely. We remember these things. Here's another example. I can tell you exactly what I was doing March 8th at 1.30 in the morning. I can tell you with vivid detail. My wife was giving birth to our first child, and I'll never forget it. It was a, I wasn't afraid. I guess I was a little bit. I mean, naturally so, but it was such a powerful, wonderful experience. I'll never forget it. And the reason for that is evolutionary. We remember very good things. We remember very bad things for for good reason. And so when someone sees that ghost, that ghost or spirit, what they perceive to be a ghost or spirit, it's a powerful, powerful event like a death of a loved one, like the birth, you know, of, of a new child, like you know, your wedding day, like your, you know, your first kiss, all these things, it's a very powerful human experience that gets burned into your permanent memory, and permanent memory can be trusted when it's powerful. I believe that hands down. And the reason all this came out recently is is actually quite a bit of controversy. Some doctors have discovered that they can inhibit the release of adrenaline. And so, for example, uh, if a woman has recently been raped, they've got a pill that they could conceivably give her that would inhibit adrenaline and hopefully make the event not burn into her long-term memory, like a forget pill. Uh-huh. Kind of scary, right? Big Brother stuff. Creepy. Very creepy when used in that way. But I think actually, so we can forget uh, in the voting booth. They give us one of those, and you can vote for the wrong person and come out and say, right. oh, oh, "Oh no!" Geez. Or better yet, give it to soldiers you're sending into battle, so that you well, detoxify their trauma. Oh goody! That's exactly the use it's for. It's for PTSD, post traumatic stress disorder. They're trying to limit limit the effects of it. And again, it's experimental and it's raising all kinds of debates as well. It should. They're saying, "Hey, we know how to inhibit." adrenaline that's not hard to do chemically and we know that adrenaline seems to be tied to burning these very frightening long-term memories and you know really powerful memories like rape like battle scenes and carnage and things like that can cause post-traumatic stress disorder which if you've ever interviewed someone who's gone through this which i have for my nightmare book uh, it is absolutely debilitating and it can last years years and decades and ruin your life it's a real thing it's a real disorder and um and so you know i appreciate where they're going with it, but I also recognize that it gets kind of scary when you're going to treat memory with medication. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception, because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 
250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car, a sleep timer, an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com right now. Click on the C-Crane Sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James Steinberg and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Jeff Ballinger of GhostVillage.com joins us. And we're talking about memories. So what about hypnotic memories? You use regression. Do you think that what you get from regression is reliable? I don't know. You know, I, I must confess, I, don't, I haven't done a whole lot of research into this area. Um, I know the work of Freud. My sister's a PhD in psychology, and if you don't have a psychologist in your family, I can't recommend enough getting one. They're very <laughs> useful, very handy to have around. You can bounce all kinds of crazy ideas off them, and I do. <laughs> and actually, she's married to another psychologist, so I guess I have Oh, to. that must be fun. Oh, it's great. <laughs> it's, it's great fun. I don't know, because I also recognize that you can, you can influence memory. It's possible to plant memory, and it's possible to change perceptions of their past. You hear stories about people that were not coerced into identifying a specific witness in a crime, but influenced repeatedly. Are you sure this wasn't the guy? Look at this picture again. You sure this wasn't the guy? Check this picture. See this picture? See him? Be sure? You know, and eventually the witness just goes, yeah, I guess it could have been. You've suggested it enough that maybe that could have been the guy. In regard to hypnosis, I don't know. I, I just don't know enough about it to, to comment on its validity. Let's get back I, to I, ghost stories for a minute. If that's something you know a lot about. So you've been collecting these stories. Please give us your favorite examples of the two most compelling site or location-based haunting cases that you've looked into on Ghost Village. I think one of the most profound, for me anyway, was uh, a sighting at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., which is the White House. Mm. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I have a children's book coming out next year called Who's Haunting the White House? And For we're kids? Using- that's what are you right. doing? Kid. I'm, you scaring I'm like kids? The, well, we um, know who's haunting the White House. His name is George W. <laughs> right. Well, is he there enough to haunt it? So uh, here's the thing. I, I called them up. They kind of have a no-ghost policy there, as you can imagine. But I called and I said, look, it's for a kid's book. We're using ghosts as an innovative way to teach history. That they were on board with. And I had the opportunity to interview the boss down there. And the boss is most certainly not the president, not any president. The, the boss is the chief usher. And his name is Gary Walters. And he served every single president since Nixon, and there's about 100 employees of the White House who work for the building. They work for, it doesn't matter, Democrat, 
Republican. It doesn't matter who's in office. These folks work for the building. They're the, the porters, you know, the, the cooks, the uh, the butlers, and all these kinds of folks, the groundskeepers. And they report to the chief usher. And I went down there, and he was talking about one of his own experiences, which, you know, interesting, I, but I won't go into too much detail about it because it's not as compelling as the one I want to tell you about. But anyway, in the White House, nothing is supposed to happen ever without lots of people knowing about it, as you can imagine. Security sure. is very tight. Pictures aren't supposed to fall off the wall when someone walks by. Doors aren't supposed to close themselves, you know, unless Secret Service or the First Family wants it closed. So when some anomaly happens, there's arguably one to 200 people who know about it immediately because it's their job. <laughs> so that, that means that any kind of ghost experience in the White House is certainly, I think, more compelling. I was uh, talking to one of the foremen down there who was telling me it was back in the 1990s. He was walking through the second floor, uh, which is the living quarters for the first family, and he said he was turning on the lights in the morning. That was his job. And right outside the Lincoln bedroom, he saw Abraham Lincoln sitting on a chair who looked up at him. He said, his legs were crossed, his hands were resting on his knees. Lincoln looked at him and then just disappeared, all in the span of a couple of seconds. Huh. And, and he came downstairs and he told one of the assistant ushers what had happened. And the usher said, you know, you're one of many people who have reported seeing Lincoln in the, in the house over the years. And he said, you know, I never really believed in ghosts up until then, but I, I do now. What's interesting about that is I'm leery about people who say I see spirits all the time. I'm not saying that there isn't some psychic ability that some people are able to do that, but I believe it's a very rare occurrence, and I can't relate to people that can see spirits all the time because that's that's not me. And so I have difficulty relating. This guy never saw a ghost before, never saw one since, which adds to his story's credibility, I think. Sure, sure, absolutely. And, uh, and and the other interesting part about this is, I'm sure you've seen photographs where people are like, this person wasn't in the photo when I took the picture. They were there, and then they were gone. See them? And you're like, yeah, but I wasn't there when you took the picture. And who's to say that's not a living person who just dashed through, and you just no one noticed it? it that happens. You know, things like that. But... Lincoln, we know what Lincoln looks like. He's on our money. <laughs> you know, we're very aware. You can't just say like, oh, that could have been, you know, someone in the first family or a guest of the house or one of the Secret Service just kind of sitting there or darting through the, the hallway. That's Abraham Lincoln. Just take out a $5 bill and you know what he looks like. To me, that's very interesting, very compelling, and he is only something to lose by sharing the story. You know, he works for the White House in Washington, D.C. That's not the kind of place that you want to be telling strange ghostly tales. So I thought that was one of the most fascinating accounts that I've heard. When you recognize the ghost or spirit as someone you knew in life, or someone recognizable like a historical figure, that makes for the most compelling accounts. When someone says, you know, my grandfather's been dead for two years, but I came down and there he was sitting at the kitchen table. To me, that's very, very interesting. Now again, did you wish it into being? Did you actually see it? Did multiple people see it? That all plays a role, but they seem to be out there no matter how much they defy our understanding of how the universe works. How about a, a sighting where you do have more than a couple of people corroborating a sighting of a specific type of entity or ghost? Do you have a story along those lines? Yeah, sure. I, again, at the Tower of London, there was a, an account that one of the yeoman warder told me, and again, they live there. They live in the tower. They live in what used to be a prison for the very elite. People have to realize that the Tower of London, this wasn't like uh, Alcatraz. You know, you had servants if you were in prison there. You know, this, this was the upper crust. These were big-time people. You had servants, 
you had creature comforts, you could have had your own chefs and cooks. You really had to be someone special to be imprisoned in the Tower of London. Today, they're living quarters for the Yeoman Order who, who live there and their families, not just the Yeoman Orders, but their families. And one interesting uh, event was, was told to me by one of the Yeoman Orders who said they'd gone to bed one evening, he and his wife, and they woke up and saw a fireplace with a fire burning and two yeoman warder who he, he recognized their uniforms as being from about the 1600s and they were smoking long clay pipes and they suddenly vanished and they both he and his wife had seen it and said well isn't that peculiar and there's nothing there there was no fireplace there and so he told some of the other folks about it and they did a little bit of historical digging and found that at one point uh, on the other side of the wall there was a fireplace back before they had things like heat and electricity and, and plumbing and things like that. So really intriguing when not only there are multiple witnesses, but it corroborates a part of history that they didn't know about otherwise. Right. Very compelling. What about your own experiences, Jeff? Have, have you ever seen anything strange and unaccounted for? I think I saw illness this morning in my toast. Oh, gee. Well, actually, you probably saw him eating your toast. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> little peanut butter and banana, and we're good to go. Oh, yes, oh, yes. By the way, let bacon, me, uh, peanut butter, banana, and bacon, I think, was the... That's right. First Here bacon. it is, guys. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown... Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Here it is. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. It's Ghosts. And Elvis. And Elvis. And Elvis is coming, too. You know, we have Elvis and Abraham Lincoln and Ronald Reagan. (laughs) They're all here, folks. That's right, with (laughs) Jeff Ballinger (laughs) of GhostVillage.com. Okay, did you see a ghost man? Tell us the truth. We want the truth. We can handle it. I'll tell you. You can handle it. I'll tell you the closest I've come to my own experience. Uh, I was in the city of Paris in the catacombs, which is uh, some limestone quarry tunnels about 25 meters below the city. And this is where they got the building materials for Paris many years ago, millennia. You know, the Romans came there right around the year zero, give or take, and they found lots of limestone. So they quarried it and they built ramparts and walls and things like that. And the city grew. It grew from a village to a town, town to a city, and they kept quarrying the limestone, but eventually to get at the limestone, they had to start tunneling because there were now houses in the way. And they tunneled and tunneled, and uh, all told, they had about 
300 kilometers of tunnels underneath the city. Over time, the city is getting denser, more tightly compact. The buildings are getting taller, bigger, heavier, and the ground underneath is hollow. So it was a real recipe for disaster. And around the 1700s, these tunnels start to collapse. And they have another problem. You know, when you build a city, you put your cemeteries on the outskirts of that city. And they did in the city of Paris. But over centuries, the outskirts becomes downtown, and the, the cemeteries become enclosed, and then there's no place left to put the bodies. And in that culture, it was very important that your, your kin be buried with your, your relatives. You didn't want to put them in a different cemetery. So priests were taking bribes to just throw bodies into a, a heaping pile of corpses. There was no room left to dig, and the, the smell was atrocious. And around the area, people started getting sick as the rot just literally spilled into the streets. So they wanted to solve two problems in the 1700s. They wanted to close off these tunnels underneath, and they wanted to empty the cemeteries. And so they were bringing bones down and stacking them in very neat, orderly, yet macabre patterns. And uh, when I was down there, I knew it was down there, but I didn't know exactly where it was, and I'm kind of making lefts and rights. And to give you an idea of the dimensions, I'm six foot two, and there's plenty of spots where I had to duck to keep walking. And if you stretch your fingers out in both directions, your fingertips are just about touching the wall on both sides. And finally, I come to an archway that said, Arrête, say you see the Empire de la Mort, which means stop. This is the Empire of the Dead. Horrible French, my apologies. And as you walk through, you're greeted by six million human skeletons, skulls that are in shapes like crosses and valentine hearts mm-hmm. and and I've just seen rows pictures of leg of this. Oh yeah, and yeah. pictures are unbelievable. It, it's really it takes your breath away, and you look at that, oh, and you're yeah. like, oh my god, it gives you the you know extreme case of the willies. I was down there completely alone at the time, and I'm walking <laughs> through, and the only sound is like the crunch of gravel under your feet and the faint drip of water coming through the limestone in the distance, and I saw a few times a big darting shadow. Now I can tell you the lighting down there was about at my shoulder. It was very low and it was aimed downward. So it's not like the lighting was down low and like a little bug gets close enough to the light it could look like a giant monster. The lighting was above and and aimed down. I was the only living thing down there that could cast a shadow. And again, when the tunnel's only wide enough for me to stretch my fingertips in both ways, if something got by me, I would have seen it. And so I kept seeing this, this darting shadow that looked about the size of a person going from one side of the tunnel to the other and low light certainly a creepy setting I can't promise you it wasn't something made up in my head but at the time I was a little bit nervous but I noticed the more I walked through this place and it's the, the area with the skeletons is about a kilometer and a half so you know a pretty good distance it, it becomes very humbling you know, you realize, you know, we, we've all had some pretty bad jobs out there. You know, I think I washed dishes at a giant at a diner once in uh, in high school, and but someone had to move all these bones down there. And one of the universal taboos we have is you don't disturb the place of the dead. You don't move bodies. You don't disturb graveyards, things like that. But they had to. They had to because the living will always take precedent. And the only way they had to show respect for all these generations of Parisians, I think, was to put them in a very meticulous pattern and design that obviously took a great deal of effort because it would have been much easier to just throw them in piles down there, but they didn't. They did this, I think, as a way to show respect. So it's kind of humbling by the time you get to the end of it. And then an interesting side note as I'm walking up, I had a my bag with me that I keep my cameras and recording equipment and stuff in. And as I got to the top on the on the exit, there was a security guard that asked to look in my bag. And I was like, you know, usually you get checked when you go into a place. And then I 
to realize. I, I, it occurred to me, I said, you're looking yeah. for bones, aren't you? Yeah. And he turned around and pointed to a table behind him, and there was about four bones on it, and he said, that's this morning. I said, wow. But people are crazy if they want to take stuff out of a place like yeah. that. I don't get it. But he didn't search my pants, so he didn't find the, uh, the one I stuck out. <laughs> no, you didn't. No, I didn't sneak a bone out. No, no, no. Well, I but mean, no. I've heard over the years you hear crazy stories that come out of Hawaii. Now, this people has something are, to do, by the way, with throwing someone a bone. Boom, boom. No. No, 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 no. But no, there are these stories out of Hawaii that I guess, I forget which one of the islands this happens on, where people take these volcanic rocks and they're told, don't disturb these rocks. Whatever you do, don't take them away. And people will, because these beautiful black kind of glass-like volcanic rock formation things, which actually you can find a bunch of these in the United States in the middle of Idaho, a place called Craters of the Moon, which is this ancient, not even ancient, it's a 1,200-year-old volcanic riverbed. These beautiful black volcanic rock formations, just amazing stuff. But people take these things away from Hawaii, and then there's this one post office where they keep getting these things in the mail. People ship them back saying, please, my life has been all messed up since I took this thing and left right. Hawaii. Take this thing back. So there's got to be something. I mean, you know, it could be just, you know, urban legend stuff. But you, you, you have to believe that, you know, you're talking about all of these bones, all of these bodies. If there is any kind of spiritual resonance at all, that's sure. got to be the kind of place where you would ex to expect to see it, especially a, a city like Paris that has just such a deep, meaningful history. I mean... So much happened there. And actually, that brings me to another question, Jeff, which is if we look at places that do have history and, and have, you know, sort of long traditions of intense things going on, what, does that suggest that some place like Israel or Baghdad has a good amount of ghost activity? Have you seen reports on Goat's Village that would support that notion? I get a few from Israel, because again, you know, a lot of English speakers there. Iraq, a few have come in from soldiers who are there, but they, really? but they relate more to, to the war as opposed to um, anything else. I, I wrote a book called Ghosts of War, and the most recent battle that I had ghost stories from was the Bosnian conflict, and this was from the, the mid-1990s, which was more a UN thing than uh, but the U.S. certainly had a large number of troops there. I did have some accounts from Iraq, but the problem was someone told me, they said, look, I, for security reasons, I can't tell you who I am. I can't tell you where this was. I, I can't even mm. tell you when it took place, but this is what I saw. I'm not comfortable putting that in the book. <laughs> it sounds too much like, gee, Jeff, you could have made that up, you know? Right. And so I imagine a few years from now, when this is over, I'll, I'll probably be able to get those details that are so needed if you're going to be at all credible when you just you mean you're going to wait 30 years until this is over 40 years <laughs> that's right yeah well as long as it takes the good news is there's other haunted places other haunted battlefields so i'll never run out are you I'll going to write a book from the other side uh, if it's at all possible and if i need the money you know i mean then you just you got to keep working right hey i mean writers don't make a lot we're going to have to work long past retirement and maybe even after death to keep paying off the debt i guess unless you're tom clancy or michael crichton hey that's right if you're looking for a better way to present or collaborate during your conference calls, your solution is simple. Web conferencing with GoToMeeting. During your call, everyone logs on to GoToMeeting.com, and your computer screen shows up on their computer screens. It's like you're all in the same room. GoToMeeting is perfect for sales or product demos, training, or real-time collaboration. 
Plus, you're not charged per minute like other providers. You can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. With GoToMeeting, you can meet with anyone, anywhere, without leaving your office. You'll not only save time, but money, too. See for yourself. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. Just visit GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. That's GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. Try GoToMeeting today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Jeff Bellinger, and he is proprietor of GhostVillage.com and author of lots and lots of books. All right, talking about ghost stories, looking about possible evidence. So what do you think? Spirits of the dead, someone trying to contact us from another place, what are your views? Here's the thing. You're getting into the realm of belief now. Well, it's all the realm of belief very much, but this, I think, more than others. And belief is powerful. Belief gets buildings built, you know, like there's a big old Catholic church around the corner from me that took money and people who believed it enough to donate that money and time and effort and all that other stuff. And and getting back quickly to Plato, who had a wonderful argument about what is truth, what is knowledge, and what is belief. Plato kind of believed that you can't have just belief, it's impossible, and you can't have just truth. What you have is an intersection of the two that's called knowledge. So, for example, I could tell you that I believe it's going to be safe for me to drive down to the liquor store after this interview and get a six-pack, but I can't know it because I haven't done it yet. And while even though it's been safe to do so many times in the past, I can't promise you that it will be safe to do so in a little while from now. But after I do it, I can have the knowledge that it was indeed safe. So when you discussed earlier your ghost encounter where two people saw it, you have knowledge, right? You don't. You had the event, you both saw it, you corroborated right. it, and right. now you have knowledge. And yes. so when it, when it comes to belief, belief is very powerful, and it can bring things into existence. Those paper bills in your pocket with dead presidents on them, you know, why is the 20 worth more than the 1, right? We have a collective belief that our government is going to back up that banknote, and, and that belief gets you goods and services and, and beer. Thank God. So when it comes to and chocolate, when it comes, when it comes and beer and chocolate, that's right, and chocolate stout. When you when it comes down to spirit communication, often it, it comes to belief. If you're talking about psychic abilities, certainly that's more gray area. I did a book called Communicating with the Dead, which was a look at the history of spirit communication devices, things like Ouija boards and and mirror gazing and EVP and even spirit photography, because that stuff I could relate to more. That's a physical device that myself or anyone else could put their hands on and arguably go through this this spiritual experiment and see what you get. You know, try it for yourself. Things like psychic ability, if I do have psychic ability, I, I'm not really aware of it to the point of being able to use it. So when someone like Sylvia Brown goes on TV and says, you know, your little boy's dead, his bicycle's in a dumpster, you know, in another state, and he's, his body's in the woods 20 miles from your house, I can't relate to that because I've never had a vision like that. Well, no, 
you can't relate to that because Sylvia Brown is a charlatan and should be executed. <laughs> but I didn't say that. Go ahead. He didn't say that. I'll just go for the jailing, okay? Forget the execution, <laughs> right. okay? She preys on the sadness and sorrow of people, and I just I can't stand that personally. That just really, it just sets me off. I'm sorry, Jeff, you were saying. No, no, no. You notice how I, I, calm and collected David is about things he's passionate about? <laughs> Here's the thing. I can't relate to that. And, of course, I gave the example of where Sylvia was quite wrong. The boy was alive and living well, and we all know about her big mistakes. But, you know, so, so that's not an ability I can relate to. But I can relate to the ability of using a Ouija board. I used one when I was 10. I thought it was certainly very interesting. Even at age 10, we were running experiments. We'd try to blindfold the users and see if it still worked and, you know, different things like that. And, and, and what can it learn about me? You know, hide objects in the room and not tell the users and say, well, what did I hide behind the chair? Stuff like that. It's very interesting to me because you can get results, right, without allegedly having any kind of psychic ability. Although some believers would argue that, no, you do have the ability and the tool is just helps you facilitate that. I don't know. But I do know that people are using these devices as part of their own spirituality and they often believe that they are making a connection to someone on the other side. But then again, there are people who pray, right? They, they pray to their ancestors. They pray to grandpa. Not necessarily to grandpa, but kind of talk. I think we've probably all done that. I've done that. You know, shortly after I lost my my grandfather years ago when I was 10 years old, I remember just kind of feeling like I was talking to him. Now, he couldn't respond, or if he did, I didn't hear it. But, you know, different things like that. People believe it. And so, does that make it so? I think so. I have this gut feeling that it works. But I have yet to have that profound, wow, this is definitely grandpa. No one else could have possibly known this experience. Have you guys had it? Not me, no. David's had some unusual encounters, but I have been free of such things, or maybe I don't remember them. I don't know. You'd probably yeah, remember I've, if it was... There's an episode I talked about, I believe it was last summer, Gene, on the Paracast, and, and it was a, the kind of thing that it just happened to me. I, I don't have anybody who was in the space with me at the time, but I had an episode happen where I felt that, in fact, I know. It's not, I don't have to believe it. It's, it happened where my mother made what I consider to be a successful attempt to corroborate for me the notion of continuation and retention of identity in that continuation. And she actually went so far as to provide physical evidence to me. So, um, you know, I, of course, I've already been attacked on the forums and uh, in private emails, people saying to me, well, you can't prove that, so why should I believe you? And I say to them, look, you can believe whatever you want. I, it doesn't really matter. Your, your belief in what happened to me or, or not believing doesn't change in any way my actual experience. That's right. Uh, you know, I don't claim to understand exactly what happened, but at the same time, it's different to you know try to understand something versus just uh, try to interpret the events around you. And I think that what we talk about in the show a lot, Jeff, is the, the notion that you have to look at people's motivation and you know why do they tell stories. I mean, I've come sure. on the Paracast and I've told stories of stuff that's happened to me that I've been really reluctant to talk about in my adult life, but I just it's been such a range of stuff that I. I don't know what else to do with this. I mean, I, I need to talk about it just as a form of therapy, I suppose. Absolutely. What you said before, by the way, I think is really important, and I want to emphasize, reemphasize it, that you said that, you know, as far as evidence goes, that you found the most compelling single element to be interesting witness testimony. And I, I, I would say that that's absolutely true. You have to look at people's motivations. You have to look at what they stand to lose versus what they stand to gain. And um, this same exact theory holds forth when we talk about things like UFOs, where you know the most compelling evidence ends up ultimately being testimony. Because when it comes right down to it, when it comes to photographs and video, 
Well, anything right. can be faked, especially in the last 15 years. Yeah, I mean, photographic evidence should go out the window. But, of course, then when we talk about photographic evidence, and this is, I just want to bring this topic up again because I know there's a bunch of photographic stuff floating around ghostvillage.com. One mm-hmm. thing I didn't find, though, um, one of the most interesting ghost photographs, I've got this book, and in this book, this is a, uh, we had some guests on recently from Weird, New Jersey. Oh, and Mark guys, and Mark. Yeah, Mark and Mark. Great guys. Really fun. Yep. The volume two of the book that uh, my lovely girlfriend, Susie, got for me. Hi, Susie. And uh, Susie and her kids. Hi, James, Lauren, and Danny. There's a, a photo in here from a place called the Van Wickle House in Franklin Township on Easton Avenue, which, strangely enough, is right around where I grew up and where I had a strange, another strange, completely unrelated episode. But there's this some um, photo, and it was um, the photo was taken in 1938. Photographer named Nathaniel R. Ewan was documenting the Wickle House for the Historic American Buildings Survey, and there's this picture of of a fireplace in the house to the left of the fireplace and right in front of a door going off into another room there is a very clear but very ghostly picture of what looks like to be a child standing in the doorway and thing is from the photographic point of view well if it was someone that was moving in or out while the shutter was open and the camera was taking the picture then that image would be blurry um we would see not a clear crisp semi-translucent apparition but we'd see something that actually had motion blur to it because if it was someone who was actually in the, the scene and was moving but no this is a very distinct a pretty pretty darn clear photo of again what appears to be a child standing in the doorway and the thing is this photograph was taken in 1938 and i think the marks ended up getting this from the library of congress this is actually like a you know a real photo that seems to not have been tampered with right that uh, it, it looks like pretty clear evidence have you ever seen this photo uh not that one specifically no it's hey. uh, it's very compelling <laughs> to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking to Jeff Ballinger from GhostVillage.com. Before we continue, would you tell people again about your forthcoming book that's coming out this summer? Yeah, it's called uh, The Ghost Files, and what it is, it's a, it's a look at the whole ghost experience. Uh, I get into kind of a way I would like us to see, to frame the discussion, something that's, uh, you know, we discussed Plato just a very little bit. I go a little bit more in depth uh, on how, how can we have this discussion without letting belief foggy us, you know, fo- foggy the, the waters a little too much. And also uh, theories as to what the ghost experience is, what it means, and then lots of uh, encounters from various individuals from all over the world who talk about, you know, what they experienced and the effect it's had on their lives. And then interviews I've had with, with people on various subjects from possession and demonic possession and everything in between, uh, in and around the this paranormal realm that I've been looking at for a number of years now on a very open forum that is the website. From your point of view, Jeff, I mean, how do we legitimize or attempt to legitimize at least a little bit this whole discussion, or is that even possible? 
What I've been trying to do for a number of years is, number one, document the experience. I worked as a reporter when I first got out of college. Editorializing is bad. I mean, we all do it to some degree, but I think the most important aspect is to ask the right questions early. Now, fortunately, because of what I do, I've become a magnet for this over the years. So when someone has a ghost experience, let's say they've never been interested in ghosts before, but all of a sudden they have this experience that they can't explain, and they go searching on the Internet. Hopefully I come up first, but, you know, not always. And they, they find the website, or they go in the bookstore and they find one of my books, or they know me. You know, they know me in the community or whatever, and they pull me aside and say, this happened to me a week ago. Well, that's an opportunity. You know, if the person has never had the experience before, they haven't talked to anyone else, I bust out my, my audio recorder and I start asking questions. The questions I ask are very critical early on. Questions like, what happened? Where were you? What was going on that day? You know, take me through the whole thing. Tell me all the details you can recall. And just document document everything that I possibly can, because what happens when some of the various paranormal investigative groups go out there is they get a bit overzealous. So if you walk up to someone who's you know ready to, to tell their story, uh, you may walk up to them with a group, which can be very intimidating. With me, it's just me. I usually try to crack a couple of jokes, get people relaxed, because this is something a little strange to talk about. And if they're going to give you the good stuff, they need to feel comfortable that you're not sure. there hovering. I just want the story. I can't prove it unless I was there. But what I can do is document it as well as possible, and I think that's an important process. But what, one of the things the, the overzealous can do is say, like, oh, so you saw a woman. Was it a residual haunting or was it an intelligent haunting? And they start going, huh, what, residual, who? You know, and, and, and you're overwhelming them with, with jargon as opposed to just saying, what happened? Who, what, when, where, and why? What were you doing? What happened? What do you think it means? You can get into all the theories and jargon later on, but in, the, in that first interview, get the story. Get the story with all the details you can because it's the further away from the event you get, the more stuff that's going to get lost. And again, it comes back to some of the most compelling evidence we have are those first-person accounts. That's certainly one of the things I've been trying to do is, is capture them well, document them. Let's, let's start lining them up next to each other, see where they fall geographically, see where they fall time-wise, who's witnessing them? Is it more men than women, more women than men? What's going on in their lives when they're looking at it? So far, there's no great database that asks you know, the same questions of all, all the witnesses. It's something we're actually working on, I'm glad to say. We're working with the Parapsychology Foundation and with the Ryan Center and, and trying to develop such a system that could start to you know, look at, at some of this stuff on a, on a bigger level as opposed to just a big collection of ghost stories on a website. Well, you know, well, that's one of the biggest problems you see with the ghost phenomenon, and that is that people take it as something for entertainment, you know? I mean, we don't take it seriously. And you know seriously. what? It is sometimes, and that's okay. It's okay to be, you know, just in, enthralled with the ghost story. That's okay. And, but it's also okay to want to know how it works and, and research it a little bit. I mean, in the position I am, I'm in, quite frankly, I, I have to balance the two. I have to balance, you know, wanting to really research it, yet make it accessible to a wide audience. And to do that, sometimes you got to give them the good stuff. <laughs> you what, know, you what you're talking about before there, Jeff, is actual data analysis. When you, you put together right. a database, you can start to, you know, actually come up with certain trends, certain things that tell you something about what the phenomenon is. And I think that's the important point. Do we have uh, Peter Davenport doing some phenomenal work trying to put together this kind of a database for UFO sightings so that you can start to come up with some trends in it in this and start to come up with some actual knowledge about what's going on. And Because that was going to be the next question I was going to ask you, which is, you know, in looking at all these cases, are there any things that jump out at you that seem to be consistent throughout all of these reports? 
Yes, there's definitely one thing that's consistent. It's inconsistent. <laughs> it's uh, no. I, it, there seem to be no rules. That sounds like a know? very consistent statement, my friend. Thank you very much. Consistently it's, uh, inconsistent. I, I, it's consistently inconsistent. I found young people have the experience. Old people have the experience. There are old ghosts, like you know, Civil War era. There are new ghosts. You know, people that just died possibly a couple of years ago. It happens during the day. It happens during the night. It happens in your backyard, and it happens in. Real Really important historic locales like Gettysburg. I have yet to find one thing where I can say, ah, Eureka. But maybe with a database, if we can start to line these things up, we can look for some kind of trend. But but we're trying to measure human experiences. Just like, you know, how do you measure the degree of love you're in with your spouse or with your girlfriend or your boyfriend or whatever? You know, I mean, it's difficult to quantify these kinds of things. They're important. They're real. They're human experiences. Maybe we're just not, we don't have it in our more, mere mortal minds to fully comprehend it just yet. But that doesn't mean it's not worth trying. How far back have you traced ghost experiences? Well, they're in the Bible. Plenty of references in the Bible. When uh, when Jesus appears before his disciples after uh, the resurrection, and I'm not asking you to believe or disbelieve, I'm just saying this is what the Bible says. Uh, Jesus says, you look as, as if you've seen a ghost. I am not a ghost. He doesn't say there's no such thing. He just says, I'm not one. They're in the Bible. There's uh, arguably in Genesis, I think, one of the, the first references. It's kind of vague, and maybe I'm reaching a bit here, but right after Cain kills Abel, God claims that the, the blood spoke to me. The blood spoke to me. Is that, is that a ghost? Is that some kind of something that happens after you die that is mm. still intelligent? I don't know. That's how I interpret it. Now, I know biblical scholars have been all over me for that, and that's fine. Fair enough. I don't claim to be a biblical scholar. That's just how I read it. Geez, they go back to Egyptian times. Think of all the, the great pains that everybody went through to prepare for dying. Um, they believed something was going on. The earliest form of religion in the world wasn't the worshiping the god of thunder or the god the sun god or the moon god it was ancestor worship that's what people did first you you reached to your ancestors your grandparents your fallen kin for guidance for help and, and vengeance and everything in between and my question is always well why would you do that what would make you think to pray to your ancestors well if they were what? nice and they were smart but if they were just thieves or liars you wouldn't want to pray to them no, no you're right but why would you even think that it was possible that they could help you unless someone saw a ghost. Someone saw someone and said, wait a minute, I know, you know, my great uncle is dead, yet I just saw him this morning. Wow, he's more powerful than death now. Well, maybe, maybe he can help me. You know, as you're saying that, something just occurred to me where here you had people who didn't have a ton of gratuitous uh, stimuli coming at them and hear what they their lives centered on were the interactions with their family, the interactions with their near environment. And so my, my guess is that they were dreaming mostly about these things because this is what their daily life consisted of, were interactions with people who were part of their family. And so now you have a family member, let's say, dies. And so what are these people going to have? They're going to have dreams about their deceased family member because they're not dreaming about stuff they saw on TV. They're not dreaming about the world situation because at that time, all of these sort of gratuitous stimuli just didn't exist. So maybe that has something to do with it. It just occurred to me as you were describing that. Let's pursue this in a moment. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your webpage? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can. Host I can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? 
Its reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's host I can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. Hey, all you have to do is go to our website, theparacast.com, and scroll down a little bit. You'll see a host I can banner. That's a host I can banner at theparacast.com. Click on that banner and you'll learn more about host I can where we host our sites. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have Jeff Ballinger of GhostVillage.com. That's GhostVillage.com, author of many, 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 many books on ghosts. Let me ask you a question here. Mrs. Ballinger, how many children do you have? Just one. Okay, the one. They ever see anything strange? Yes. She's three months old, and she's seen her dad many times. <laughs> uh, boom, boom. As soon as she's talking, believe me, I'll be asking all these questions. What about your wife? No, she's never had some experience. She's the uh, the scully to my molder, I think. she's. You know, this isn't her passion, which is great, but we get to go to some pretty cool places on vacation and, and while we're traveling and things like that. She certainly does. She has an appreciation for the history and for the writing and the whole process. But no, she has not had any uh, overtly paranormal experiences. How does she feel about what you're doing? Then I mean, you're, you're obviously spending a great deal of time on this, Jeff. She really? loves it. She's all for it. She's very supportive, you know, of my writing career. She was she was my first editor. We actually met in college. She was my editor at the school newspaper, and so she's kind of been correcting me ever since, <laughs> in one way or the other. And uh, and she knows my passion for kind of collect collecting the, the human experience as much as possible. I'm also really fascinated by religions. It ties in. It's it's a spiritual question. It's this thing that people latch onto and believe in. And and it becomes very real. You know, I, I want to pick that apart. I, I can't get enough of it. What are your plans for the future in terms of ghost research? And what can be done maybe to have traditional science take it more seriously? Well, there's a few things going on. This summer, uh, we've got an event called the Ghost World Conference in Gettysburg. It's uh, July 20 to 22nd. And one of the objectives of the conference is to have a symposium where we're going to bring paranormal investigators together and say, look, there's so many people out there in the field doing this. You're doing it all kinds of ways. Some are using some are using dousing rods, some are using EMF meters. Whatever you're using, that's fine. But in addition, let's collect some data the same way and feed it into a central database that we can all access and learn from. And so the objective is to is to start to bring people together to build that database uh, and start collecting that data. That, I think, is important. That'll be a real legacy because there's so many groups that are doing really interesting stuff out there, but over a number of years, they lose interest or they lose funding or, or whatever, and they stop. And all the knowledge they have kind of just drifts away.
spray into the ether. And so this is something that, you know, we want people to be able to contribute to quickly and easily and uh, and leave some kind of legacy for the future. So that's that's one thing that I think is important. Are they getting uh, along? And the reason I raise that point is because one of the problems we see in the UFO field is that the philosophy is we can't get along. Everybody has their own turf to protect. And right. it's so difficult to get things done that make sense. You're right. I mean, it's it's nasty in the paranormal community. It's it's downright catty. It's one of the reasons I don't belong to any groups. It's just me. You know, um, I've got my website. I try to promote and publish the work of all kinds of people, even people I don't agree with. You know, you'll notice there's plenty of pictures of orbs on Ghost Village. Everything in our encounter section, I, I tell people, hey, take it or leave it. I, I want this as part of the discussion, not proof or sometimes not even evidence, just part of the discussion. And you can disagree. So, yeah, no, there, there are turf wars. There are big arguments. Well, no, you never use a psychic in this research that others would say, well, of course you use a psychic. What I'm hoping to do with this, this database and, and, the group and the people who are involved is say, look, we're not telling you how to do it. That's one of the things that people just don't respond to very well. You know, when you say, look, this is how you do research. We're going to tell people, again, do it the way you do it. But we, if we're going to leave a legacy, we all have to do this the same. So just answer these 15 questions at each place you go, and, and let's start to line this stuff up and figure things out. Does space weather have anything to do with it? There are theories that say, you know, if there's you know, high electromagnetic activity, if the sun's spewing out all kinds of radiation, if there's a solar storm that increases electromagnetic activity here on the ground, that spirits might be able to manipulate that energy, and there should be more unexplained activity during those time periods. Well, is that so? Well, there's really good websites out there that document solar activity, you know, solar flares and things like that. Let's start to look at dates and times of hauntings and line it up. Maybe that theory is hogwash. Maybe it's not. Maybe there are a lot more, but we won't know until we start to line a bunch of these things up. Are those experiences real or generated by some kind of right. outside energy that causes us to imagine things right. based on our own knowledge and experiences? You're right, and that may be so. But either way, let's let, we won't know unless we start putting them all in one database. But you're right, no, the, the, the groups out there can be very catty. I think a lot of it also has to do with TV time. I mean, everybody and their brother gets seems to be getting a TV show on the paranormal these days. You know, lots of people think that they should be the experts and they should have the TV shows. And I remember the day when experts were people with PhD and, you know, professor of and author of. And today, experts are people that get on television, which is a, kind of a frightening state of affairs. But. <laughs> Cautionary tale. Caring about it will make you crazy. Did you hear that, Gene? Uh-oh. Okay. <laughs> Caring about the fame and, and fortune and whatever may be out there, you, you got to do this stuff. I'm sure it's no different in the UFO field or in the cryptozoology field. You have to do it because you love it because there's certainly no money in it. Well, when people talk about getting involved in this or, you know, like in the UFO field, certainly people talking about, oh, you know, the, look at all the money they're making with that book or that project. It's like, I don't think so. And in fact, when you look at what's going on on TV, one of our favorite guests, uh, Richard Dolan, who's a real well-known UFO researcher, was part of a program that was on the Sci-Fi Channel, wasn't it, Gene? Uh, the Sci-Fi Investigates. Or That's right. They had one season, and I guess it didn't get renewed. Apparently, it didn't work out. I know that the Ghost Hunter show is coming back on. What do you think of those guys, Jeff? I'm for anything that furthers the discussion, that, that mm -hmm. gets people asking questions. And I can say that that show fueled a lot of people going out and starting starting to do this kind of research, maybe just in their own town or whatever, and that's a good thing. We all have to remember that any television show, from The Tonight Show to Letterman to the soap operas in the afternoon, exists solely to sell commercial time. That's the only reason they exist. If people watch, they can sell commercial time and people will make money. If people don't watch, commercials don't get sold, the show gets canceled, period. Right. That's how television works. You know, to make a compelling show, it's not always real science or really 
how it works. And, you know, I don't know how much of that particular program that is, you know, influenced by the, uh, you know, the producers or what. But take it all with a grain of salt. That's all. Because it's a television show. You should take everything you see on television with Even a grain the of salt. news. And Even especially the news. the news. You know, Jeff, I think what you're doing is great. And ghostvillage.com is a really excellent website. So I would really strongly urge our listeners to go and check it out. Okay, so where can our listeners get a hold of you if they have, number one, ghost stories or just want to see what you're about? Yeah, ghostvillage.com is always the best place to reach me. There's also jeffbelanger.com, but probably tough to spell, so go to Ghost Village, you'll find links. And uh, that's always got the events that I have coming up. It's got a huge community forum, places to submit your own ghost encounters, and everything there is open. It's open and, and ready for you to read and consume and agree or disagree, and and no matter what field you, you stand in, uh, I'd love to hear from you. You know, I, I welcome articles from skeptics. You know, I think good skeptics keep us on our toes, give us stuff to consider that we have to come up with answers for. Uh, and I even welcome religious views. There's, I get plenty of emails that say I'm going to hell for propagating this, this deviltry, which is fine, you know, because I want to be with my friends for all eternity as opposed to heaven. <laughs> I'm okay hell's, got, hell's got the better music, as Bill Hicks would say. That's so true. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you so much, Jeff Bowen for joining us this week on The Paracast. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, no problem. It's fun. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast. Paracast.